Hey everyone, uh, welcome. We've had some tech difficulties with the last few iterations of this, and so we're hoping we get this right this time. There's a lot of sort of uh, cameras and mics and things that we're setting up a little to make this make this work smoothly. So it's always a bit of a, a stab a stab in the dark almost. So I'm I'm trusting that this one works fine. If you have any issues with the audio quality or video quality, just let us know. Uh, this is a learning and iterative process, as you can imagine. Uh, Super excited to go into this Ask Me Anything session. Uh, the way that we prepare for these is that we typically gather questions that are sent in ahead of time, often questions that come up in our conversations with companies and, and users and individuals within the uh, sustainability data space. And then we sort of collate those and we, we try and cover a bunch of those. Uh, what we're also looking to factor in is just stuff that we're hearing and learning and reading about and following along with because we imagine many of you are following the same sort of trends here. So one of the big ones that came up recently is this uh, Amazon push to bring the supply chain on board. And so for anyone who's sort of followed along with that, I think the announcement came out a week or so ago with the ESG report that Amazon published uh, for the full Amazon group. So Amazon.com, but also AWS, where they talk about the, uh, the massive policy intervention that they're bringing in to bring all of their suppliers uh, on board with their sustainability journey. And so as part of that, their supply chain engagement protocols, they're going to be requiring suppliers of theirs to share emissions data uh, and to share emissions targets. Uh, that's understandably caused some waves in our space. Um, and I think that there's an expectation, it's kind of like two aspects that a lot of people are talking about. One is, wow, does this mean that Amazon is really moving in in a big way and kind of almost putting all the chips in? Uh, because the biggest thing that they could be doing as you know, one of the largest retailers in the world, I don't know if they're the largest retailer in the world, one of the biggest things that they could be doing in terms of just putting all their chips in and going all in is to bring the whole supply chain on board and get everyone to engage with them in actually moving the emissions journey forward. Uh, so that's, I think, one thing. The other piece that a lot of people are talking about is, is this a really clever business strategy? And I think this is super interesting because for anyone who's been interested in Amazon as a business and the Amazon journey, what you'll have noticed and observed is that over the last 25, 26 years that Amazon has been kind of really turbocharging its growth, one of the things that they've done really well is to turn cost centers into profit centers. And so if you look at a few examples of that, right, if you think of the, you know, AWS really uh, growing out as a way to sort of turn what would otherwise be a cost center for Amazon in terms of just hosting and, 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 and server capacity and turn that into a new revenue stream. They've sort of done this time and time again. And there are usually a few factors in common with how Amazon approaches this sort of problem, which is one is that they think about uh, what would best in class be if we were to do this really well internally. The second thing they think about is what's a good way to really engage our ecosystem and bring them all on board in a way that uh, creates net value for, especially net value for Amazon's customers and consumers, but also effectively creates a massive lock-in and a massive moat around the business. And they've been, they've been very, very clever and quite brilliant at that. And then as part of that, like what are the sort of new services and new revenue streams that they can layer on once they've sort of built that moat and that defensibility to really just keep growing the revenue stream from that space? And so uh, I read through the ESG report and I kind of looked, looked through all the aspects in which they've approached this problem. 
the content around specifically how they're going to approach the supply chain side of this is reasonably light. Uh, but I do see a few things referred to again and again. So one is the, the sharing of data and targets, which obviously come. The second is that they're looking to help suppliers transition to carbon-free electricity. And that comes up a few times. The third is that they're looking to select partners from their supply chain for decarbonization business opportunities. And that's an interesting third one. The fourth one is that they're looking at this as an opportunity space for them to provide products and tools that can help their suppliers to decarbonize. When you look at these sort of different aspects, you see the, the same Amazon playbook uh, playing out in a really interesting way, which is they're basically going to do a number of things. One is they're going to achieve the basic nuts and bolts of the data and target information data gathering that they're going to have need to have done anyway, right? This is not new, frankly. It's not like they're the only retailer out there looking to engage the supply chain on bringing in data. And they have to do that anyway for their own emissions calculations, for example, and their own target set. Uh, so that's actually kind of fairly straightforward. But the next set of pieces, right? When you think about carbon-free electricity, you think of products and tools, you think of decarbonization business opportunities, you start to see already that ecosystem effect uh, which they've been so brilliant and so really uh, trailblazing almost in creating uh, for themselves and, and for their shareholders and ultimately for their customers as well. So like, I think this is going to be super interesting to keep an eye on. And I think that, you know, the, the interesting three things that we'd look for, uh, one is going to be how does this change supplier behavior? And obviously there's a huge amount of heft behind that in the ability for Amazon to actually drive supply chain change. And that's going to be positive for all of us. So I think there's an interesting piece to watch there. The second is how does this build that ecosystem and increased stickiness for Amazon by creating maybe, you know, ways of sharing data and exchanging data that effectively creates some element of, of, of barrier to entry for other retailers to, to manage that process. Uh, or for example, just more value that they're bringing uh, to their partners, which again creates an element of lock-in. And then the third is what are the new billion dollar revenue streams uh, for Amazon that come out of this, which I think is also going to be exciting to see. For anyone who's been following along, Amazon has been also experimenting with you know, emissions, data management, and calculations one in their own space as well. So it's, it's, it's all stuff to keep an eye on. So I'm personally super excited to, to watch this space. Uh, but, but let me just park that there for now. And then also very happy to, to welcome Izzy on board with us uh, for the first time, Izzy's joining one of these in front of the camera. Izzy has been behind the camera for many of them and has been the orchestrator and the real magician behind how we do this. Struggling with the tech, amazingly. <laughs> so it's nice to be on the other side of it. Occasionally, occasionally start struggling with the tech, but really excited to have Izzy, Izzy join us. Izzy's also uh, taken the lead in curating a lot of the questions that we've gotten through. Uh, and so she'll kind of also just be reading out some of the questions and then we'll, we'll do our best to answer answer them. And if there's anything else that comes up uh, that we don't address, or you'd like to go a bit deeper into any of these, just, you know, put a, put a comment uh, in, in, in the chat or otherwise, or reach out and we'll, we'll do our best to get to that as well. Also, as always, we're taking any live questions. So again, please feel free to comment with anything that's on your mind and we'll pick that up as well. Uh, Izzy, over to you. What's our first question? Yeah. So to kick things off, and as Seth said, definitely put up any questions you have in the live chat and we'll try and pick those up. But we had a question through from Luke, um, who said, our head of sustainability doesn't report directly to the CEO. Um, do you think this is a problem? 
It's a good question. And I think it entirely depends on who the head of sustainability reports into. And I don't just mean what role, but I also mean what type of person that is and what type of individual that is. Uh, and so if I, if I start off almost by thinking like the first question I would look at is what is the nature of sustainability change in that organization that they're trying to achieve? And so I, I would almost think of this like, is it a transformation you're looking for where you need to really shepherd a massive shift in the organization and how they're approaching things? Or is it something iterative? You're, you're actually tweaking on the edges and it's more about consistent incremental change, less about radical organizational shift. Uh, I think there's another element, which is how much of this role is going to be internal facing about alignment and coordination and project management versus how much is external facing. How much do you need someone who's going to be out there uh, on the stage at a supply chain conference or out there kind of in the news and with press or with the industry really uh, kind of beating the drum and giving the message for the organization? Uh, Depending on kind of where you land for that, I think that's one element. But both of this sort of part of the question, which is how is the organization approaching sustainability change, I think drives the overall requirement that you need from the combination of that head of sustainability and whoever they report into. And so it's fine if you have some of that in the head of sustainability, and it's fine if you have some of that in whoever they report into, but between the two, you kind of need to manage for this. And so if I think of a few things, right, like uh, does the person that the head of sustainability reports into, let's say it's a chief operations officer, which is a, an increasingly common iteration. Does that chief operation officer, for example, have sufficient understanding of what's going to be required, what it's going to entail, if it's a transformation, what are the big levers, how much is it going to cost, all of that stuff. Do they have sufficient understanding uh, that they can appropriately support the head of sustainability in getting the job done. Uh, you know, and, and, and if they can do that, and if they can also, for example, provide sufficient cover, air cover, and political capital within the organization to make sure that those difficult decisions are unlocked and that things keep moving forward, then you know, that can work really well. And so, for instance, you know, thinking back to the, the individuals I know, uh, you know, if I think about like one head of sustainability at a big food business that reports into the chief operations officer, uh, she knows that the COO has her back and the COO knows enough about the topic to know that it's important and requires uh, pushing and momentum and door opening, but doesn't want to or need to know so much that they get involved in the nuts and bolts. And that's okay. The COO's job here is to ensure that he has her back on the difficult conversation she might have with finance, uh, on actually going out there and driving change in the supply chain, on uh, getting the limelight uh, when it's appropriate to actually represent the organization, uh, even though she might not be CISO. Uh, and I think those are, those are really good characteristics for a COO to have that can make the combination super effective. Uh, if I think of some other examples where it doesn't work so well, Right. Again, let's take the same iteration, different head of sustainability uh, reporting into a COO. Uh, in some situations, I've seen a COO be very insular and think very much about the operational efficiency and the organization internally. And that can be really good for things like, you know, again, scope one and two related stuff, for instance, and you're thinking about energy efficiency and, you know, maybe waste and a few other elements. Um, 
but where you need to then move into galvanizing the industry or the supply chain to change, that COO can be much more internally facing and internally looking and can also then end up wanting to deprioritize a lot of the stuff that isn't dovetailing nicely with their own KPIs. And as a COO, they'll have their own KPIs. And if they see actually, look, all this procurement stuff or supply chain stuff is kind of unrelated to me, uh, that can then sometimes be a big letdown for a head of sustainability. So what I'd sort of look for is, can you get the combination of things right across these two people? And then it's perfectly fine. And in fact, sometimes I think it can actually be a really good way to have a stepping stone where you have a head of sustainability and you have the right person in that role. And that person is able to use this to build momentum and credibility within the organization and experience, and actually maybe even lean into some, for example, the operational aspects of that role with the support of, let's say, a COO, or lead into like, lean into like the financial, the reporting aspects and the, the data validity and the quality control by working with a CFO. Like it can be a really nice set of training wheels for a head of sustainability before moving up to something more senior. So it, it depends a little on the nature of the individuals involved. Yeah. I think the most effective sustainability teams are those who have like the wind team behind them. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah. But okay, so I'm conscious of time. So on to the second question from Emma. Um, so she says, I'm currently looking for an impact software solution and I'm in conversations with a variety of solution types. How would you compare an ESG-wide platform versus a carbon-specific platform? Yeah, another good question, Emma, and again, somewhat context-specific based on the organization that you're in uh, and what you're looking to solve for. And so I would sort of really orient around primary expectations. Uh, and so if your primary expectation of the software is that you're looking for a digital wallet, basically, you're looking for something that can store all the numbers and whenever you need the numbers for any reporting requirements, they're there, they're available, they're kind of curated. And um, you know you're going to have to fill in a lot of surveys on the back end to get to those KPIs. But you also want that digital wallet to function as the repository of all the surveys and, again, have consistency across the organization. Uh, in that case, I think that an all-in-one ESG solution can be the right fit. The risk with these sometimes is that there's um, almost like an inertia or a momentum or tendency to maximize the number of KPIs you're reporting against and like have as many KPIs within the same platform. And then, you know, maybe you have like dozens of different KPIs that you're trying to manage for. And I think I've given this example in a previous uh, discussion, uh, but you know, like the, the largest I've seen is 218 different ESG KPIs that an organization was looking at. And so I think that's just a risk that you need to be mindful of, that you don't have this ESG KPI creep almost, where it just keeps expanding. Um, obviously, there are considerations around just like, you know, how to get the data in there. But I think that for many companies uh, where you're just looking for that wallet, an ESG all-in-one can work. Uh, if your primary expectation, by contrast, if your primary expectation of the software uh, is to provide you with deep insights and analytics on emissions, uh, and potentially two or three other related metrics, uh, you know, for example, water, let's say land use or deforestation, you know, stuff that dovetails nicely with the emissions problem. 
And you want to really go deep into that side of the problem and you want to understand uh, initiatives, interventions, uh, cost of intervention, who needs to be involved. You really want to go quite deep. Uh, then you'll probably get more use out of a carbon specialized or carbon focused or environmentally focused platform or product or digital product. The risk with that is you go super deep and you build this super strong muscle on one or two or three of the metrics that you're thinking about. Where And you end up having a, a very analog process for a lot of the other ESG metrics. Um, I'm, I'm obviously quite biased in favor of the environmental metrics. That's the space that I, I know and work in predominantly. But at the same time, there are other metrics that are important, right? And, and we can debate more or less important. But there are other metrics that are important. And so what you don't want is that those all become kind of the forgotten children of the process. Um, anecdotally, you typically see two types of companies uh, going for the all-in-one ESG software. Uh, the first is small or medium enterprises, for example, with less than $100 million of revenue across any sector. And these sorts of organizations typically have uh, uh, obviously a limited budget, as every organization has. Uh, but they also kind of don't have that much complexity necessarily. And they're happy to lean in on things like the data gathering and getting the data into the system. And they can kind of almost wrap their arms around the whole organization and they know how it moves and how it ticks. And they know what they need to do intuitively to move things. They often have very few products that they, they deliver or produce. Um, and so in these organizations, that all-in-one digital wallet can be, can be a really, really good move. And then, it, you know, the need for granularity and accuracy is a bit lower, so it works just fine, works fine for investors, banks, et cetera, other people who might want these KPIs, works well for internal momentum also. And then whatever budget is left over, they can deploy that to actual change. And ideally, the software should be the very, very small fraction of the budget. And ideally, as much budget as you have available should go towards actual change and galvanizing momentum uh, rather than on, on, on data, for instance. Uh, the other example of organizations that we see looking for ESG all-in-one tools are you know, larger companies with very simple environmental profiles. So think about a software business, think about a professional services business. Uh, usually you have the absence of lots of material inputs, the absence of lots of manufacturing processes and stuff like that. Uh, and in these organizations, emissions calculation should not be a very hard thing. It should be an easy, easy-ish thing. And therefore, actually, you know, you, don't, you shouldn't need specialized software to get this done. And so, again, having an all-in-one solution can make sense. The particular companies where we'd suggest avoiding going for an all-in-one solution is where there's a lot of operational complexity. Uh, so think about a lot of business units. Uh, there's manufacturing. There's some agricultural activity. Uh, there's a lot of, let's say, products or SKUs also involved. In some cases, you're doing value addition. In some, you're not. There's like a lot of complexity there. And in these cases, uh, the savings that you might make from an all-in-one solution, which are often cheaper than specialized solutions, the savings may well be eaten up by lots of internal work. And so if you kind of almost think of what the ratio is, often the, the external spend has a one to two ratio with the internal spend. And so for every dollar you're spending externally, you might end up spending like $2 internally. And that can actually go up quite considerably if you just think of all the people you'll need to be able to manage the assumptions and, uh, and, and all of the data gathering involved. So that, that, just a few thoughts on how to think about that question.
Well, it's a conundrum that I feel like we've faced with quite a lot, so it's good to unpack it. Um, on to the next one here, which is coming from Esther. So Esther mentioned that we have multiple teams set up in our company to cover different sustainability topics. So scope one and two, supply chain, product LCAs. Um, what is the best way to help these teams work well together? Another good question. We're getting a lot of good ones. Today. Um, <laughs> so this is super interesting. And I find this one, this is an interesting topic for me because often the companies that have set up multiple teams to focus on different aspects of sustainability data and change are the ones that have been working on this for the longest. And the reason for that is, you know, if you flash back eight, nine, 10 years ago, then, you know, maybe they started thinking about scope one and two really only that part. And they started thinking about, you know, renewable energy transition, operational efficiency, waste, a lot of other stuff. And so they just started with a small internal team to focus on those things. And then gradually they think, okay, well, actually the, you know, the scope three aspect is now becoming more important. We need to start engaging the supply chain. We already have this process running for our internal data. Let's set up another team that's going to go out to the supply chain and engage that side of business. And then, you know, more recently they start thinking, well, actually product breakdowns and product labeling and all of that is becoming more important. We've got a team for scope one and two. We've got a team for scope three. We have no one thinking about LCAs, for example, at any kind of scale or scalability. Let's, let's find a process and maybe tooling and external support and consultants also for that. And so you can kind of see how an organization can just evolve to have these different sort of sometimes silos and sometimes not, but just these different fragments of approach. Um, and the way that I think about this is you need to divide the sustainability topic in these organizations into two parts. One is that you need to think about the data and reporting. And so let's call that almost like the infrastructure aspects, the nuts and bolts of what you need to enable change. So the data and reporting. Let's think about the second piece as implementation and budgets. How do you actually now use the infrastructure that you've set up and, and got in place to again, drive change, deploy capital, uh, pilot initiatives, scale up, et cetera. And if you think about infrastructure and data and reporting, you want to do those in a centrally planned and strategic way, because the more that you invest in making that scalable, the lower the cost per unit going forward, the more you'll be able to use it and leverage it and build on it going forward, the more other people will be able to use it within the organization. And so uh, doing this kind of in a tied up, joined up way has lots of benefits. Uh, one is, for example, you know, if you think about your, your greenhouse gas inventory and targets, you're going to need to unify this data anyway. You're going to need to bring it together because you're going to be looking at your targets in a joined up way. So you have to sort of start bringing this data together. The second is abatement planning, where you're looking at comparing different interventions against each other, and you're, you're contrasting them, let's say, by marginal abatement, marginal abatement cost, for instance. And so again, you sort of need to try and bring your scope one and two and three all together. And ideally even start looking at it through a product lens already to start saying, well, we can shave the emissions off this product by 15% or 30%, 40% by doing these five things. And I think that narrative power of that is quite compelling. And you don't want to miss out on that 
by not having the joined up data to make that easier. And the third is, again, going to like product emissions and labeling and product redesign. Uh, you're going to need to use the activity data that you're using for your greenhouse gas inventory in a different way, which means that you need to have access to that activity data to be able to combine it in a product context. So if you think of all of these three different sorts of use cases, these are all reasons why you try and bring together the data and the reporting aspect in a unified central way, rather than siloing them across the organization. And if you, if you don't do it this way, there are a few challenges. One is you probably increase your external spend considerably because you're going for different sets of advisors and tooling and so on. And then the other is that you, you also increase your internal spend and internal resource requirement hugely because you have all these people trying to go back and forth across each other to get the data again all into one place for the individual use cases on a case-by-case -case basis which is painful, frustrating, and inefficient, frankly. And so uh, I would think of data and reporting as, as necessarily combined. Uh, let's look at the other side, which is now how do you actually drive change? And let's look at implementation and budgets. Uh, in this context, I think it does make sense to start splitting things out because you really want to achieve a few things here. One is you want to devolve ownership of action to as close to the front line as possible. You want the person who is at the front line of engaging with the emissions driver, let's say, with the activity, the underlying activity generating those numbers. You want the person who is at the front line of that to own the problem and own solving the problem. And this is why, you know, just as an aside, this is why we always talk about involving that person from the data gathering stage onwards, because you're going to need to get the data from that person, but you're also going to need to go back to that person later on to get them to be involved in change. And so you want to really bring them on board from the get-go. Um, and so you want to already start devolving that ownership. The second is that you want to create a, a, an element of healthy competition between teams because most performance-driven teams will do best when they compete. And so you want to have some element of being able to, again, leverage that central infrastructure of data and reporting to create transparency, visibility, and, uh, and healthy competition between people who are looking at those numbers. And that's something that we, we are finding quite powerful across organizations. Uh, and the third is that interventions and the process of deploying budget behind interventions looks very different depending on which team you're in and which part of the business you're in. It's very different to spend money and make change happen on energy use internally in terms of who you need to align with to make that happen and also how budget is going to be managed internally and how business cases are developed internally. That's very different to how you might do this in a supply chain engagement context, where you might well be looking at a very different budgeting process, a very different process for developing business cases, and a very different process for engaging stakeholders. Um, and so I sort of think that each of these three reasons really contributes to why you would want to start devolving uh, that aspect of actually making change happen. And so again, the rule of thumb is when you're doing infrastructure planning, like for data and reporting, that it's best to think in a central joined up strategic way. When you're trying to make change happen, then it's best that this is devolved at the level uh, of the people who have the right context to really move it forward. Yeah. And it definitely helps with buy-in because you're sharing the costs. Exactly. The exactly. Right. Like it helps to actually spread the load across different teams yeah. uh, when it comes to change, because you can, again, tap into multiple budgets as well. Uh, 
definitely mm -hmm. a win-win. I think we have time for just one more. Um, so Tom sent in a message saying, we've just done our first manual carbon baseline. However, I'm aware that we had many data gaps and used very generalized assumptions. And as such, we're a bit apprehensive to make big investments on potentially incorrect hotspots. Do you have a rule of thumb on data maturity and when to act? Yeah, um, we, we've, we've, uh, thanks Tom, it's, it's, it's another good question. We've been getting this question a lot last year, uh, not so much this year, but certainly uh, for, for organizations that have been at an early stage of setting up systems. And again, you know, everyone is frankly at an early stage of data maturity. One of the things you want to think about is how much should I focus on getting the right data in place versus just getting going and driving change. Um, and, you know, I, I, think about, I think about this in a few ways. One is that it's very unlikely that a decent intervention turns out to be the wrong idea for you to do for your business. Most likely, most interventions that you're going to be making uh, are the right things to be done, right? There are a few exceptions to this or a few just caveats to bear in mind. Uh, one is where a reduction intervention turns out to have been made redundant by another intervention that you make later on. A good example of this, which is a, sort of a sad and, and, and unfortunate example, is a lot of the great work that many teams are doing on energy efficiency, from a simple carbon accounting perspective, might be made redundant by a shift to renewable energy later on. So you're kind of doing all these things to save power, you know, you're putting off the lights when you leave the room, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like list goes on, can obviously become much, much more complicated. But then you shift to renewable energy and suddenly these numbers all change anyway. And so your work has sort of been made somewhat redundant. Obviously, there are mitigating factors there and sometimes cost savings. But, you know, a lot of the work that you go put into planning that might be spent better on just planning to shift your power source, for instance. A second example is where there's a commons problem, a problem of the commons of others as well involved in your, in your ecosystem. And you've tried to solve for that and it was later solved for by other stakeholders. An interesting example that I think will become a bit more real over the next one or two years is a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and you know, uh, using last mile logistics are now thinking about how to electrify the last mile logistics play or also how to work with suppliers or, or, or couriers that have that last mile logistics play uh, electrified in some, in some shape or form. And you know, in many cases, there's going to be some element of cost to it, and there's going to be other interventions that they look at to try and optimize fuel use. And there's, again, a lot of thinking that's going to go into that. Whereas a number of cities, um, a number of cities are now exploring relatively ambitious, relatively fast-paced plans to decarbonize within the city areas. And you know, London is a good example. It's a fairly ambitious electrification of transport plan. And at some point, that's probably going to make redundant a lot of the stuff that individual companies are trying to do to make that last mile lower emissions. So I think that's kind of another thing to just be aware of. I'm obviously ideologically in favor of everyone doing everything that they can to move the emissions challenge forward. At the same time, we all have scarce resources. And so if there's something that is going to be enabled or subsidized or, or facilitated or done by other stakeholders, it doesn't really make sense for you to preempt that. Go and focus the scarce resources on something that no one else is going to change for you. Uh, the third example that I think about is uh, any reduction that you deploy where there was a substantially cheaper reduction that you could have made 
that would have had the same effect. This one is probably the hardest for you to actually understand. And uh, this is the one where it really starts to help to have good data systems in place. So if I think about the three examples, right? One is where an intervention has been made redundant because there's another intervention you did that, that, that nullified it almost. The second is where an intervention has been made redundant because someone else solved the problem for you, maybe just after or around the same. Uh, and the, the third is where you did the intervention, but there was something else much more cost-effective that you could have done. And so the rule of thumb that I would look at is uh, if there's an intervention that after appropriate interrogation will always look like the right thing to do, uh, then just go ahead and do that, right? So a good example is shifting to renewable power uh, in an environment where there is cost parity with the grid power, for example, or the conventional power. Just go for it. You're unlikely to regret it. You're unlikely to be wrong. May as well do it. Uh, the second is an intervention that makes money, uh, whether it's revenue upside or cost reduction. Again, may as well just go for it. Unlikely to regret it. Good examples are manufacturing optimization, packaging waste reduction. These sorts of things are probably always going to feel like the right thing to do because they often also save money. Uh, for the rest, I would look to accelerate getting good data systems in place that can help you make those trade-offs much more effectively on the basis of some sort of marginal abatement cost logic, which I think is the best way to look at these. What I mean by that is, what is the, the, the lowest cost of the next best intervention that you could be deploying to make a, a given emissions reduction? Awesome. Um, well, I just want to shout that if anybody wants to add any questions, slide into Seth's DMs um, and we'll be definitely happy to answer them in our next AMA, which happened every Wednesday, first month, um, first week of the month. And I think we're at about time, so I don't know whether we want to wrap up now. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think let's, let's, let's kind of wrap it up. Apologies for, for running a little over time. I think those were some super exciting questions. So, so thanks. Uh, we had Luke, we had Emma, uh, we, had, we had Esther as well. Uh, and we had, we had Tom, right? So I think a, a lot of, a lot of good stuff to cover. Um, I think this is an evolving and an exciting space. And so I'm also, I'm interested in seeing how some of these questions start to look thematic across different organizations. I'm also super interested just in understanding whether there are sector specific nuances that you're experiencing. So this would be great if anyone has, you know, would love to hear them in, you know, uh, the message me or, or put something in the comments, but I'd love to see any sector-specific nuances that you're experiencing in the food and cosmetics and apparel and related spaces, obviously flag and land use change and land management are big ones, but, but of course there will be many, many others as well. Um, and then again, very excited to see what, what the news brings, right? Like every additional announcement changes the landscape a bit uh, when it comes to engaging supply chain setting targets and so on. And I think that organizations are going to start to build on, on what their peers are doing in more and more creative ways. So that's going to be quite cool to see as well. And hopefully it brings some positive news to the forefront rather than just the negative. Exactly. Especially given the heat waves we're all experiencing right now. I think we could all yeah. use a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of positive news, news at this point. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Izzy. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Um, Fantastic. Excellent. See you next time. See you next time.